What's up, everyone? My name is McKenna Herford, and I have a PhD in counseling psychology. Why listen to this podcast, Revealing the Ivory Tower? Well, basically, I'm so sick and tired of the Ivory Tower, which is basically a metaphor for people who are fancy and have been stuck in their research laboratories for 20 years and have lost touch with reality and real people and are studying things that are not really impactful in any way. And a lot of times they're pretty biased. And truthfully, I've had my own negative experiences, including searching a medical diagnosis for a really long time. Finally got it. Thank you. And my own experiences in grad school. So I'm here because people know me for my realness. And so I want to tell you the realness, my own perspectives, the biases, the research, and I'll have different guests talking about a lot of different topics. So let's dive in, tear apart this tower once and for all, and have real conversations with people that the research actually affects. What are your thoughts on the legal system in the United States? Take a minute to kind of think about that. For this episode, I met with Brie Boss. Yes, her last name is Boss. And no, she's never changing that because why would she? Her last name is Boss. I can't get over how amazing that is. She's a current law student in her last year of school and hopes to join the field as a criminal defense attorney. So we covered a lot of topics in this episode. And basically, we cover the legal system in general, um, the basics of it, her experience as a Black woman in law school, and a very interesting intersection between my field of psychology and hers in the law field. Now, I was introduced to the legal system, as many others were. I watched a lot of Law & Order and CSI growing up. Super accurate, right? Everything is so clear-cut. There's always a smoking gun. The court process goes smoothly and doesn't take very long. Yeah, it's not that easy sometimes. I guess I would want them to know that it can be a very slow moving process. And I find that, you know, the average client or the average person, especially that's incarcerated, there's some amount of frustration that comes with that, right? You know, you get an attorney and you're hoping right then and there your outcome can be changed. But I think as an attorney, there's always wanting to like look at all your options and make sure that you're doing the right course of action that kind of aligns with your client's goals. And I think that's especially true in, you know, criminal defense work. There is so much at stake and so much on the line. And, and I think as a, as someone that's been affected by the criminal justice system, a client kind of wants that, wants, you know, the result then and there. But, you know, as an attorney, like you always have to be careful and always making sure that you're looking at and exploring every option. Lawyers are getting these massive caseloads and often, you know, they might not have the resources, especially in state offices to, or government offices to, um, you know, devote an equal amount of time to each case. So, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. it's, it's not 
possible, frankly, with with the um, amount of time you get with going to plea deals and uh, having to, you know, stay and make your first appearance in a court to evaluate every single little, little piece of evidence and follow up on every single thing, especially if you don't have an amount of resources, the resources mm-hmm. to do it. But um, of course, we do do what we can as an attorney. And I think that, you know, sometimes it does come to the process and not really that that substance like you indicated. So I think I kind of agree with that. She also talks about imposter syndrome in grad school as a Black woman. The term imposter syndrome was coined in the 1970s and is commonly talked about in academia. It refers to basically feeling like a fraud, that you don't deserve to be there. I was really excited to hear that her program and field are talking about this too and not just mine. In this case, you may attribute your success to luck or other outside factors instead of your own effort and your own strengths? I think something that's also important, especially for people of color that Mm -hmm. are trying to get involved as a lawyer, there's something we talk about all the time. It's called imposter syndrome. And, you know, we were told, you know, the first day of school, you might feel that as a woman of color or as even a man of color coming into the system. And, You know, sometimes the legal system appears to be represented by people that don't look like me as a black woman. You know, judges and even my bosses, nine times out of 10, I felt that I've been the only person color in the room. And I would just want anyone that is trying to pursue this career to know that even though our circle of, you know, minorities involved in the profession might be small, don't be discouraged by that. And just form those connections early on so that you have like sort of a network of people when it gets tough and don't let, you know, being seen as the minority in the room in the legal profession kind of dissuade you from forming those connections and forming those relationships with your Caucasian boss, your Caucasian coworker. So I think I think that's like something that stands out a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, being where I'm at, even my internship opportunities, you kind of have to like not talk yourself down when you're even applying for things because you're like, hey, I'm just this this black woman that feels maybe she's not good enough to get certain opportunities. But, you know, it's important to really assess where you're at and know that you're just as competent or even more competent as other people that are applying for these jobs that you're seeking. So you really have to like not get in your own way. Some researchers have found that imposter syndrome may pop up, especially for students of color because of messages received in academia and elsewhere. Even if you have a really supportive program or field, if there aren't a lot of people who look like you, it's hard to feel like you belong sometimes. In addition, you might also be receiving messages from academia that you actually aren't welcome, even if the messages are unintentional. Ugh. And don't worry, I'll be covering this more in another episode. 
I also asked Bree, what would be the first thing that she would change about the legal system if she had all the money and authority to do so? Something actually I would love is to take my money and use it to fund sort of like poverty simulations in different law schools. So that day one, if you have someone that just hasn't been exposed to poverty or hasn't been exposed to, you know, people that are waking up every day and having to really grind it out to make a living or even to put food on the table, they are experiencing as an attorney what that might look like. And so I think that I think that's something I would love to see funded in every single law school, some sort of poverty simulation. And another thing I would like funded is maybe having different companies or different organizations have their own um, resources they can put toward indigent defense. And so I, I think I think that that's what I would want. But I think policy measures are really hard um, to put in place just because people come from so, so many different backgrounds and I guess my political science brain is, you know, if you haven't lived in a certain ecosystem to where you're seeing why someone might might act how how they act and they might feel like, well, I have to do a certain thing in order to put food on the table. You're not going to understand how that might how that might correlate to any sort of, you know, quote unquote, bad behavior that they might do in order to survive. I thought that this was a great point about experiential learning, basically immersing yourself in different experiences and putting yourself in other people's shoes, because in both of our fields, that can be really impactful and it's also important. Now, backtracking a little bit, my first experience work-wise with the legal system was in Pensacola, Florida, when I worked out of jail. And wow, was that a ride. I was a baby master's student. I was just starting out in the field and didn't really know what to expect, but I certainly was not expecting all of that. I remember a a specific client who had been arrested for forgery. He had a history of arrest before, and I can't recall if any of them were violent. He also was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which from my standpoint and my field, it can be really tricky to effectively treat. Our criminal justice system has actually now been called one of the biggest providers of mental health care in the United States. And I'm just going to let that sit for a minute because that's crazy. That system was not built for this. This makes things really sticky. And that was the case with my client too. Every week I met with him, he claimed that he was innocent. And despite what people think, most clients that I've worked with anyway are not constantly proclaiming their innocence. But he did every week. He couldn't afford the bail that was set because it was based on past charges. So he stayed in jail for three months. During this time, he was unable to make car payments and house payments, and he lost employment. He was eventually acquitted 
And so essentially he was innocent in the eyes of the law. But when he left, there were some lasting effects because of the fact that he wasn't able to make these payments. So imagine for a minute being falsely accused of something and you can't afford bail. You're stuck in jail and lose these opportunities because of something that you didn't do. Now, I'm certainly biased toward bail reform, so I'll own that right now. I'm open to discussing what that might look like, but because of situations like this, it's really tricky. However, when I spoke with Bree, she had some amazing points that were also well-balanced. On the one hand, she said that a judge is essentially being asked to assess for a lot of factors, including risk of violence, and judges are not trained for this. I hadn't thought about that because this is my field, well, technically forensic psychology. And even forensic psychologists don't always get that right, despite what criminal minds might tell you. On the other hand, she said that cases can take a while to reach a conclusion and the person may be stuck in jail for years, meaning that this person misses out on the income of life itself. And that pressure may lead a client to want to plead out. While incarcerated, that person or their family may also experience a ton of trauma because they're incarcerated. Overall, this point kind of left me stumped because I hadn't thought about all these pieces. And I'm hoping to show that in the moment, I came into this conversation having an idea about what I thought was best for bail reform as a non-attorney because I'm such an expert. And of course, this is because of my own experiences and research that I've read, but I also received new information that I can't really reject because it's a really good point. Judges are not trained to assess for all these different things. Now, some pieces of deciding bail, of course, but violence, for example, that's my field, not law. And so it's really tricky. And so a judge may err on the side of caution and make bail higher or take bail away just to ensure people um, are safe in the community. So what does that mean then? Because I'm also not going to reject my past views either. So finding a way to integrate all this information is really important. Another piece that is a lot more lighthearted is this (laughs) hilarious story about cannibalism that Brie told me. And of course, I made several jokes throughout the episode. There's something called legal clinics. It's called a attorney student attorney bar card, where under the supervision of someone that's already a licensed attorney, you're able to take on cases, and uh, you know it usually can last like a semester. And so, um, having the opportunity to do that, if you can, as someone in law school, I think it's something that is so invaluable because. I find that classes can be sort of theoretical and, you know, mm-hmm. you're getting these cases. My first case in criminal law was about cannibalism, right? <laughs> like in the 1600s. What? what? Wait. Yes. Wait. So, <laughs> so my, first, my first case that I read was about cannibalism, like in this England England case. And you're just like, huh? Like, how does this apply to anything Anything that I'll ever have to learn, like I've, I've never really heard of anyone prosecuting a cannibalism case. So it can just be Maybe so in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in Florida, you're right. But it can just be so theoretical that right. you'd graduate 
I mean, you graduate, you take the bar exam, you're there your first day and you're like, what the hell do I do now? This and is it's nothing you, like real life. This is exactly, this is nothing yeah. like real life. And so without that experimental learning, like you would never know like, okay, this is how I need to follow motion. This is what it's actually like to talk to a client. This is the political context I need to deal with with trying this case. So yeah, you definitely need to have the hands-on experience, I think. Um, and it, it's it's super helpful before you actually get your license and are just plucked into whatever office with your caseload. So first of all, I love that that clinic is a thing. And also, I'm still thrown off by the cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having both those thoughts at the same time. <laughs> I want to read up on this cannibalism. I'll I'll definitely send you the case. Oh my god, do. I am I am so intrigued right now. We also saved the icebreaker questions for last in this episode, and I hope you enjoy them as much as we did. She also gives some lasting thoughts or takeaways that she wants people to have for this episode. Is there, because I know there were different CSIs. Were there any, was CSI Miami the most ridiculous? I'm trying to remember. I think CSI Miami was the most ridiculous. Like I agree. Just, just the, the evidence and, and, and sort of like the conflict issues like you talked about are were always insane and also I think that was the one that was the latest so the outfits were always ridiculous the night yes. 2000 yes. suits <laughs> yeah and I remember I think CSI Miami but there was that episode where they thought that I think it was a lady got shot and it turns out that a hurricane came through and carried the bullet into her body and killed her or something like that. <laughs> There's actually a show I just started watching. If you oh. want to, if you want, well, I actually finished it, but <laughs> if you want to see absolute bad lawyering, it's called shark like on and uh, James Baldwin is in it. And if you've watched mm-hmm. Family God, you you know that he's always teased. But yeah. if you want to see unethical luring, like this guy assisted with a murder and lost his license and then got his license back. Like totally ridiculous. This guy committing crimes, falsifying <laughs> evidence. And the show just makes it seem like, oh, this is everyday. No. So totally ridiculous. But Shark. If you want entertainment and want to see what lowering is not like, watch that show. Also, who is your favorite shark on Shark Tank? Oh my God, this is the <laughs> toughest. Okay, you should have prepared me for this question. So I could have so thought. <laughs> I thought it was going to be exciting for you. The most important question out of this entire podcast. Oh, we can table it because I have another one. <laughs> oh man. Oh. Let me think about that. One. Okay, okay. I have another question. So we can we can pause that one, save that one for last, which apparently I should have done. So I'm just going to apologize. <laughs> okay, because I know you're also into true crime stuff and, and serial killers and all that. Do you have a favorite serial killer? 
Ooh, okay, you're getting more difficult. <laughs> oh god, okay, well, that is- <laughs> okay, um, I think I think my favorite serial killer. I have I think I, I have to go. Are you smiling right now? I love yes. that. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I'm also smiling. And I don't think you can see me, but I have my head in my hands right now in like a very Mine too, way. and I'm smiling. <laughs> I'm leaning in because I'm waiting to hear what you have to say. It's a tie between Eileen Wernos and Ted Bundy, I think. Okay. Okay. Tell me about Eileen. I just think she's so fascinating because of that that idea oh a woman doesn't isn't a serial killer a woman doesn't commit crimes I just think it's so interesting how she was able to kind of get away for so long because of that stereotype of women aren't serial killers and just like at the time that her trial happened I feel like there wasn't really this focused on, okay, how could her background as um, like a survivor and all these trauma that she experienced informed how she acted, you know, in these situations with these men. And so I think like her psychology is so fascinating. And I think Ted Bundy is fascinating because A, his experience as a lawyer and B, one, I just don't understand how people were so attracted to him because he isn't attractive to me. And so, like, seeing the footage of people, like, fawning after uh, him <laughs> in his beer belly, like, I don't know. Beer awesome. belly. Oh, no, she went for the beer belly. <laughs> and also, if you saw the Zach Efron portrayal of him, oh, my God. Oh my god! So I bad. Oh my god! That was a good. Oh my god! (laughs) That elevated his attractiveness for you. Is that what you're saying? It elevated it just a little bit. There was a scene. There was a scene where he was making out with with uh, God Phil Collins, Lily Collins, when he was in jail. Yeah. And he showed like a little side profile of his butt, and I was like, "Oh my god, okay, Zach Efron, all right." So, <laughs> Ted Ted Bundy though, his just how he was able to game the system and mm-hmm. sort of get people to trust him, I think is very fascinating. I think that other people like Jeffrey Dahmer is their go to, and I just think, eh, doesn't really entertain me, like. The acid in the head thing with his victims is really creepy, but I don't know. I just, Ted and Eileen, I'm going to rock with for my answers, but I'll probably, it'll probably change depending on my mood. That's okay. Cause I have something to tell you. You were the second person to tell me that Eileen is their favorite serial killer. Oh my God. Okay. (laughs) That that person is my best friend. Whoever said it first. She's in my field. She was my first guest. I get, yeah, now I'm, like, very hyped about your Shark Tank answer. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, <laughs> it has to be Kevin. Yeah. 
Mr. Wonderful. His, I love him. His rootful, his rootlessness. He gets to the point. He tells you what you don't. He doesn't tell you what you want to hear. He tells you what you need to hear. And I love that. Takeaways are you can't, you have the right. If you're going to take a plea, you have the right. If you're going to go to trial, you have the right. If you're going to testify or not. And you always have the right to an attorney. So assert that right. And I think another takeaway is that 90% of the time, lawyers have good intentions. And that as a client, especially if you're a client that might be lower income, like just just try to work, just try to work with your attorney and be upfront about your concerns and serve the objectives that you're trying to get out of the representation because you got to remember that attorneys are just normal everyday people and we're not mind readers and we're not again psychologists or sociologists so we're just doing we're doing the best that we can with the training that we've received but meet us halfway so that we can help you get to where you need to be in the legal system so I would challenge people to do that and I would challenge lawyers to meet their clients halfway on that too and just try to be more cognizant of what circumstances their clients might be coming from. If that's their income, if it's their social economics, their mental health background, be thinking of that over the course of your representation of your client. Boom. Boom. As always, I appreciate the support. Listen to it again, share with friends, or give me ideas of what topics you might want to listen to.